All right. Well, it's, it's good to see a pretty good turnout this afternoon. I figured if uh, we have a good full house here this afternoon, um, it's probably because you didn't get much of a sermon this morning. So you're going to get hopefully something a bit better and a little bit longer lasting um, than the one this morning. We are, you know what, um, we're, we're dealing kind of with a heavy subject this afternoon. And I don't know if I would say it's heavy emotionally, but it's, it's heavy in terms of its substance or its content because we're looking at something that a lot of Christians, I think, don't really like to, to talk about. Um, even uh, think about, and that is the subject of hell. When was the last time you heard a sermon on hell? Um, well, you're going to hear one um, this afternoon, because that's where we're at in our catechetical series, when we're going to be taking a look at the, um, the, 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 uh, the difficulty that Christ experienced and the anguish they experienced in, in shouldering the, the, the wrath and the penalty of hell for us. So, in that, with that in mind, I suppose there's a number of passages that we could go to um, to explain hellish torments and the reality of hell. And the one I've chosen comes in story form from uh, Luke chapter 16. And then what we're going to do is we customarily do, we're going to confess um, the words of our catechetical document from question to answer 44. So I want you to draw your attention now to Luke chapter 16. As you know, if you follow the ministry of Jesus, he was accustomed to telling basic stories to illustrate profound truths. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Well, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, or so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now I want to draw your attention to question answer uh, 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism, 
And as we customarily do, um, I'll read the question and then let's confess the answer. Why is there added, he descended into hell? And let's say together, in my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and the torment of hell. So we consider, again, a subject that many people um, either deny or they believe in, but they just not rather uh, think about it. I don't know if you, when you've had the opportunity to share with people um, the Christian faith and things about Jesus, um, and I don't know if ever the subject of uh, heaven or hell was brought out, but what I have realized on a number of occasions in speaking to people about the Christian faith is that um, it's, it's, it's that they believe in it. I find this very interesting. Probably 80 to 90% of people I talked about believe in a heaven and a hell. And they really don't want to talk about or think about hell very much, but they, they don't mind talking about heaven or thinking about heaven, as you can imagine, right? And yet, yet they, still, they still believe in that. You know, the Bible speaks quite clearly about the matter of hell, okay? Hell is a place. Now, like heaven, we don't know where heaven exactly is, only that it's a place and it's a reality. And it's the same thing we could say about hell. We don't know where it is. The Bible never tells us where it is, only that it is real and that it is a place. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that when, when you examine this book, you realize that, that the Bible really doesn't say a lot about hell, but on the, on the other hand, it never really says a whole lot about heaven either or about what we call the intermediate state. And when I talk about the intermediate state, that has to deal with kind of what happens to us after we die and before we either go to the place of heaven or hell. What is that intermediate place? How long does it last? What is that like? We, we, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say a lot about it. Okay, so the Bible doesn't say a lot about the intermediate uh, uh, state, it doesn't say a lot about heaven, it doesn't say a lot about hell, and yet the interesting thing is, is that when you study history, and when you study theologians, and when you study pastors, and when you study philosophers, it's almost like they cannot help but speculate about what hell must be like, because oftentimes when we're given so little information about something, we start thinking on our minds, well, what must that be like? What must that be like? I want to give you just a few examples. Now, I know I'm not dealing with the Bible here right now. Stick with me for just five minutes because I think it's, very, it's good for us to look at, at history upon occasion. Um, I want to give you uh, a couple of examples about someone's rich imagination about hell. And maybe you've thought about hell in this way. Raise your hand and don't be bashful. Just, you don't have to talk. Just raise your hand if you've ever heard of Jonathan Edwards. Okay, some of us heard of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was perhaps the, the most well-known philosopher and theologian and preacher that America ever produced. And he is um, perhaps most well-known for a sermon that he preached called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, I don't know if you've ever read that before because it's online, or maybe you've at least heard of it. Maybe you haven't heard of it at all. But he preached that sermon in a place called Einfeld, Connecticut, that was his pastorate, and he preached it 
1741, at the height historically of what was called the uh, First Great Awakening, I mean, you've heard of people like John Wesley or George Whitfield who lived during the same time, okay? And it was a time of great spiritual awakening in the eastern part of America. At any rate, it was Jonathan Edwards who preached this sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, to his congregation. And at one point, he's warning them and actually striking fear in them because the story goes is as he was preaching, people were actually crying out and groaning as they were hearing this. He talks about a, a spider and it's an illustration, a spider hanging from a single strand of web that's, that's poised over a flame. And it's only the good pleasure of God that keeps the spider from being consumed. The sermon, in part, goes like this, if you'll put that up there. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. Hell is a great furnace of wrath. It's a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, and every moment they are ready to singe it and burn it asunder. In short, you have no refuge. You have nothing to take hold of, and all that preserves you is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God. One other example comes from an Irish writer named James Joyce who in his book Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man writes about a Catholic priest who instills a great amount of fear and dread in his listeners when he describes hell in this way, if you put that up. The, hell, the lake of hell is boundless, shoreless, and bottomless. It's on record that the devil himself, when asked the question, was obliged to confess that if a whole mountain were thrown into the burning ocean of hell, it would be burned up in an instant like a piece of wax. Oh, how terrible is the lot of those wretched beings who are damned to eternity. The blood seethes and boils in the veins. The brain boils in the skull. The heart in the breast glows and bursts. The bowels are a red-hot mass of burning pulp, and their tender eyes flame like molten balls. Oh, my. Yeah. The Bible talks about the eternal flames of hell. It never goes quite into this detail, but the imaginations of people are going. I could cite a church father named Anselm. I will not for the sake of time. And others who use their imaginations. So, yeah, what does the Bible actually say, though, about hell? It was a man named John Calvin many years ago who warned against speculation. We've got to be careful. So we need to stick with the Bible. So what does the Bible actually say about hell? We don't have time to go into all of it this afternoon because I want to have just a little bit of discussion time after this. But I want to bring a few things out. Okay, let's deal with our passage. If you could put the passage back up there, if you would please, or if you have a Bible, you can follow along. As I said, the story here this afternoon is a very simple story. It's a story that Jesus tells. And by the way, I'll probably mention this a little bit later on in the sermon, but you, many of you are probably aware of this, that Jesus, when you read the Bible, Jesus actually talked about hell more than he did about heaven. And I'm going to cite some Bible verses a little bit later on. All of them, except one, comes from the teaching of Jesus regarding the reality of of hell. Here Jesus tells us a very simple story. Kids, it's a story that you two can understand. There's only two central major, the two main characters to the story. You have a rich man and you have a poor man. The rich man is unnamed. The poor man, his name is Lazarus. And in this life, in this life, 
the rich man had it good. The Bible says he ate sumptuously. He ate whatever he wanted. He had all the foods that he wanted. He had the best of clothes. He had everything that he wanted. And then you have this man, this poor man, Lazarus. He was a man, obviously, who was poor, who had very little. He's a man who was humiliated and a man who was of ill health. And the Bible, Jesus mentions this detail that he was a man with sores. And the dogs would come and they would lick the sores. You say, why would Jesus add something like that? I think what Jesus is getting at in the story is that that obviously the rich man is not looked highly upon in the story and the poor man is kind of receiving his just desserts in the afterlife, right? And, and I want to submit to you that if you read between the lines in the story, the indication is that this rich man, he was not looked down upon just because he was a rich man. I mean, there are rich figures in the Bible, right? Like Abraham or Job. They had many flocks, many herds, many children. They had it very good. But, but they were committed to God. The indication here is that the rich man is not looked upon, down upon because he's rich, because he didn't have a heart for God, and the, rich, the riches that he had became an idol in his life and took his heart away from God. And I want, to, I want to say also the indication here is that Lazarus is actually a man of faith, but yet he had a difficult time in his life, and the Bible says he had sores, and then what would happen, kids, is that the dogs would lick the sores. You say, why would Jesus add that? It's because during that time, and even in the Middle East today, dogs were dirty creatures, and they were considered unclean creatures, according to the Bible. So really, Lazarus is not only a man who's poor and of ill health, but he's kind of an unclean man. In other words, he's a man who we would look down upon naturally in this life, but in the afterlife, after they die, what happens? The rich man is brought down, and Lazarus is elevated. The rich man experiences pain, Lazarus experiences pleasure. Follow the story with me, beginning at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple, and fine linen, and by the way, you know, we can buy, buy these kinds of clothes. You go to Walmart and buy fine linen clothes or some really nice department stores and, and clothes that are colored. These are very unusual. Only the rich own them. The rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he feasted sumptuously. Kids, that sumptuously means he could eat whatever he wanted as much as he wanted, kind of like a buffet that you go to. Every day he had this. But also at the gate there was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. What a terrible, terrible thing. How desperate he is. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. If you grew up with the Bible and you grew up with the King James Version, there's an older version that means that he came to Abraham's bosom, kind of close to his chest. He kind of came to Abraham's side. What that means is that, that Lazarus found a place of comfort and intimacy, something that he did not have in this life. The rich man also died and he was buried. And in Hades, or some translations have it hell, here Hades is a place of punishment that occurs in the intermediate state. doesn't go into details, just that it's a place of of torment. Being in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out. He could see him, 
right? He could, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to, uh, to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The indication here in verse 24 is that when, Abraham, um, when, the, when the rich man is calling for Lazarus to come to him, as if he knows Lazarus already, he knew his name. So again, reading between the lines, you have this rich man who had everything and he knew about Lazarus and yet he would not exercise mercy to Lazarus. He would not give him any food from his table. Clothe him at all. He neglected him. But Abraham said, child, remember, he's talking to the rich man now, remember that in your lifetime you receive good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now tables are turned. He is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Take a look close at verse 25. Abraham said, child, remember. Remember the things in your lifetime. You know, hell is a place, one of the worst things about hell, I think, is it's a place of remembrance, but also regret. You know, think of how many people in hell are looking at their lifetime and saying, you know, I could have changed. I could have changed my ways. And I could have heeded the call to Christ, but I never did. Hell is a place where there are no second chances. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. Kids, you know what a chasm is? It's like a, it's like a big valley, so you have maybe a mountain over here and a mountain over here, and there's a valley in between, there's a chasm. And he says here, Besides all this, between us is a great chasm and has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so and none may cross from there to us. The idea is this. There's an understanding of the people in hell or Hades who are looking at those in heaven or understanding that they are there, but they can't cross the chasm. It's not like they come into hell and then say, I don't like it here, and so I'm going to do what I can to get to the other side. There is no getting to the other side. Some of us maybe have at least heard of the medieval Italian poet Dante Alighieri, who, who in his one of his uh, trilogy, it's a, it's a book called The Inferno, and there's a sign above hell that reads, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. In other words, you know, the rich man is saying to Abraham, Send Lazarus to my house, my father's house. Why? Because I have five brothers there, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead... If something spectacular happens, then they will repent. And it's very interesting. Abraham says, listen, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Right? So the rich man is saying to Abraham, please send Lazarus to my brother. I have five brothers. And if Lazarus leaves heaven for a time and he goes to them on this earth and speaks to them and warns them about this place of torment, oh, certainly when that spectacular and supernatural thing happens, then, then they will repent. And Abraham says, but they have this, Moses and the prophets. And we could add to that, they have the teaching of Jesus. <laughs> Let them listen as you are listening now. 
Because, because you know what? If, they, if they're not willing to listen to this, if they're not willing to understand the descriptions of hell, and if they're not willing to heed the warnings, it doesn't matter how many people come from heaven to them and speaks to them. They're not going to believe them either. And so you come to the end of the passage, and, and the point of Jesus is not to end on a happy, happy note. See, everything's okay in the end. He says it's not okay in the end. Which I think it's Jesus' intent to, to have us come to the end of the story and just stop us in our tracks and, and, and just examine ourselves, right? Now, when you take a look at the rest of the Bible, particularly, and we can't cover everything, but when you look at the teachings of Jesus, when you put together a sermon like this, you say, okay, what are the fundamental things that we learn about hell that are not only in this passage, but other places in the Bible, other places that confirm what's either here or add information? And with that in mind, I want to draw your attention now to some passages that are before us in the AV, if you could put those on. Here's some things that we learn about hell, and this is the nature of a catechetical series. It's more of a teaching series. First of all, hell is not temporary. Hell is eternal. Then he will say to them, these are all the words of Jesus, then he will say to them, truly I say to you, and this has to do with mercy ministry, to the extent that you did not do it, that is, show mercy to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go not into temporary, but eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. Secondly, hell is a place of torment in body and soul. The Son of Man will throw all lawbreakers into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell where the worm does not die. That is... There is an eating away of oneself in hell, a gnawing, gnawing eternal discomfort, and the fire is not quenched. There's a persistent, awful burning. What kind of burning? What kind of fire? I can't tell you. I don't think any theologian can tell you exactly the nature of that, only that it's awful. Hell is a place of God's wrath. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him, not just in this life or the life to come. Have you ever heard of people talking about hell in this way? They say the worst thing about hell is that God is not there. In a sense, that's true and it's not true. God is not there to someone in hell with his mercy because it's too late. The mercy is in this life. The mercy comes in pleading with people to draw near to Jesus and find their hope in him. So God is not in hell with his grace, but God is very much present in hell with his wrath. Hell is a place of separation and abandonment. Between us and you, we find in our passage, there's a chasm that is fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not do so, and none may cross from there to us. Hell is a place of separation from the grace and the pleasure of God. Finally this, we see Jesus experiencing himself the pains of hell for about the ninth, about the ninth hour, 
Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabbathani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced the reality of God's wrath and abandonment, well, throughout his, throughout his life, as the Catechism says, but especially at the end, on the cross. And we have covered those hellish sufferings on the cross. Remember, if you were here, we were looking at Psalm 22, and we followed that psalm. All the psychological and bodily and emotional and soul-filled hellish tortures that Jesus experienced on the cross. Now, there are, there are some in the world who would say, well, listen, when you take a look at the, the, um, the teachings of Jesus, there, Jesus tends to, not always, but often he speaks in symbols. You ever get this? So, Jesus talks about the outer darkness. Uh, Jesus talks about the worm that does not die. I mean, that's, that's very symbolic language. And so, there, ver, there will be many people who conclude by saying, you know what, um, then we don't have to take Jesus' teaching about hell literally. He never intended it to be taken literally. And that's why there are some individuals, and I don't know if kids you ever study this in the catechism classes that you go to, it's called annihilationism. Maybe you heard about that. It's a teaching that is taught by the Jehovah Witnesses, by Seventh-day Adventists, and even by some very reputable um, Protestant theologians. There's one named Philip Edgum Hughes, as well as John Stott. I have, many pastors have commentaries by John Stott in their library, and actually they're very, very good commentaries. But John Stott also was an annihilationist. An annihilationist believes that hell is not an eternal place. and That when the Bible talks about hell, hell is a destructive force. That when people die, they simply do not go. I mean, if they don't go to heaven and believers in Jesus Christ, then that, that's just the end of their life. And they're just eaten up by the worms and that's it. And there are some who will say, some annihilationists, they're not all agreed on this, but some annihilationists will say, well, listen, actually, there's the idea that there is some torment, but it is short-lived, and then the fire consumes them, they are destroyed, and that's the judgment of God. But I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to think about the, the, the rea- um, the, what, what, what symbols really point to and the nature of symbols. And the nature of a symbol is to point to something greater than itself, is it not? So, for instance, um, there are times when we have baptisms here. And there's times when we have the Lord's Supper. We have a table here and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, kids, you know that when there's a table with the elements of the Lord's Supper, you know that there's two elements, right, that you can actually see. There's bread and there's wine or grape juice. And the bread points to the body of Jesus and the wine or the grape juice points to the blood of Jesus, both given on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins and to reconcile us to God. Now, sometimes you will see that there, when we have baptism, we don't have a, a, what's called a baptismal font here, but there's a bowl here, right? And you lift up that bowl, I lift up that bowl, and then the child is brought forward, a form is read, some questions are asked of the parents, if it's a child baptism, and then the water is administered in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does the water point to? The water points to the cleansing of a person's sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, what I explained to you are the elements, the symbols themselves. Water, bread, wine. But they point to something greater than themselves. Points us to Jesus Christ himself and what he's done for us, right? 
Now, when you apply that to the reality of hell, if some symbols point to something greater than themselves, then in reality what that is telling us is that the symbols that Jesus uses regarding hell, hell is worse than those symbols that he uses. Think about that. And that kind of stops us in our tracks. So when you think about these things, and when you look at the Bible's teaching on hell, I want to leave you with, with, with just three things to ponder. If, if hell is not illusory, in other words, if hell is not made up, or if hell is not a literal place, I don't know about you, if I know that the, the life that I live, that in the end I will simply be destroyed or be annihilated, that's not going to create in me a great amount of urgency regarding myself or others. But if you take hell literally and you really ponder it, there's three things I leave you with. First of all, it gives us a greater sense of urgency for those who do not know Jesus. Doesn't it? Because when you're talking to someone about Jesus, they're not robots, they're human beings that are made in the image of God. And the warnings of Jesus should be our warnings as well. And, and to bring the subject lovingly but firmly to them at some point and say, have you ever considered the afterlife and have you ever considered what happens to those who do not bow the knee to Jesus? So there's a sense of urgency that needs to be created in us. And, you know, I suppose that kind of relates to something that we're looking at periodically in our, in our morning worship services and the sermons, you know, and, and what you discuss in your care groups, mercy ministry. Why do we exercise mercy? Well, you say, because Christ calls us to do that, absolutely. And it's to alleviate some of the sufferings that they experience in this life. But it's also designed, as we combine the word of Jesus with our mercy ministry, it's designed not only to alleviate suffering in this life, but the life to come. And that should be our burden. But secondly, the teaching on hell should kind of make us stand back for just a moment and just examine ourselves. Because if there's one thing that the Bible warns Christians about. It's, it's a word that I'm going to use now. It's called presumption. You know what presumption is, kids? Presumption means that, that you just look at your life and you say, well, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus and I'm walking with Jesus and just assuming everything's fine when in fact, actually, and I say this not to create unnecessary doubt in us, right? But, but we need to examine ourselves, right? The Bible tells us that, right? So, for instance, let me give you a couple passages in that. The Apostle Paul says, okay, so you believe in Jesus. Test yourself to see that you're truly in the faith. Peter says, make your calling and your election sure. Um, the writer of Hebrews says, pursue sanctification, that is, pursue holiness, which without, no one's going to see God. Right? There's other passages, many warnings in the book of Hebrews, actually. Um, something that we need to be aware of and something that we need to be reminded of is that, that, you know what? Your baptism doesn't save you. Whether you were baptized as a child or whether you were converted to the Christian faith, you were baptized later on. You can't ever come to the Lord living a, a life that is contrary to Christ and say, oh, but I was baptized. Oh, really? Um, your attestation or your membership in a local church, whether this one or another one. It's not going to save you. How about this? 
even your profession of faith in Christ isn't ultimately going to save you. I like how uh, a man named R.C. Sproul put it many years ago. He said, you know, no one was ever saved by a mere profession of faith because words can be cheap. Or it's like when you get married, right? You make a profession of, of in, in, in a profession of faith, public profession of faith, you can make a profession of faith and say, I'm going to be committed to Jesus. I'm going to be committed to living a holy life and a Christian life and be a, a, a contributing member and a living member of a local church and all of that. And yet as you get older, you find yourself kind of slipping away from that vow that you made. It's kind of like marriage, right? If you've ever gone through marital difficulties, you know that you can make a vow when you get married, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to keep that vow. Sometimes we slip, slide away in our own marriages, right? Welcome to being fallen human beings, right? So, so as Sproul put it, no one was ever saved by a mere profession of faith, but we are saved by a possession, true possession of faith and a possession of Christ. So a sermon on health is, is designed to at least make us pause and engage in a bit of introspection in our lives and really examine ourselves and ask ourselves, am I really, am I truly walking with Christ? We all stumble, <laughs> we all fall. The only thing is, are we repentant? Are we believing? Are we continuing to cling to Christ? Okay, there's that. Now, one final thing. And that is this, though there are encouragements for us to share faith with others, lest they receive the end punishment of hell itself. And while there's an encouragement for us to go engage in some introspection regarding our own lives, that should not, and I want to emphasize this, because I think it's the emphasis of the catechism as well, and it's the emphasis of Jesus, the Bible as a whole, that that the realities of hell and the warnings of the Bible should not take away the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. A fundamental teaching of the Bible is this, that when by the grace of God you come to the end of yourself and you recognize your sins and you confess those sins in the name of Jesus, the Bible says that Jesus then for you is what we call a substitution. Or we talk about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. That is, when we confess Jesus and we embrace Jesus in faith, all of what we deserved in terms of the judgment of God in this life as well as the life to come is placed on Him instead. That's why Jesus had to come in the first place. No other religion, no other religion offers that kind of rescue. You know what all other religions teach? Across the board, but in different ways, you've got to work your way to God. you just got to work your way to God. Oh, hell is a reality. Oh, I don't want to end up in hell. So what do I need to do? I just need to be better. Because if I'm better, then I'm okay. If I'm better, then God will love me. If I'm better, everything's going to fall in place. The problem is, you and I are inconsistent at best in doing that. And God says, I want you to be better all the time, but I know that you can't. Therefore, because of that, and all your failures, I'm taking all your failures and all your sins and all your difficulties, and I'm taking them all, and I'm putting them on Jesus. And Jesus is the one who then fulfills the plan of God and the judgment of God for all our failures and all our sins. And that's why Christians are always talking about Jesus needing to go to the cross, because it's in the cross that all our sins and all our failures and the judgment and the wrath of God is taken away. So when you look at the Bible, Jesus experienced the hell of pain, the hell of body, the hell of soul. Jesus, when he was on the cross, I read that earlier, 
You know, Jesus is hanging there and it's the culmination of all his suffering. And, it, and, and it's there on the cross where all the pains and all the tortures and torments of hell are heaped upon him to the greatest extent. It's the culmination of his hellish sufferings. And what does Jesus cry out? My God, my God, oh, why have you forsaken me? And the Father never answers, but we know the answers to that. And God is saying, I forsook you so that I did not have to forsake my people, so I did not have to forsake the repentant. So in the end, really, while hell is a, is a heavy subject for the Christian who understands the Bible rightly, actually, it can be a very beautiful, beautiful thing if we believe that Jesus shoulders these, these things for us. And you think about that. You think about it. Jesus, Jesus loved, loved you so much that he was willing to take this upon himself. Is the Father who gave the mission to Jesus, but Jesus who willingly said yes to the Father's mission, and I will do all that it takes to secure the eternal destiny of my people. So our calling, in light of a sermon like this, think about hell. Think about it seriously. And all of us should be joining hands and actually running, running in one direction to a faithful and loving Savior. He says, come. Come and I will embrace you and all of what I have done I will grant to you if you just leave everything behind and entrust yourself to me and follow me. That, my friends, gets at the very center of the teaching of the gospel. And we're going to discuss this in just a moment. But before we do, um, join me, if you would, in prayer. Oh, Lord, um, a heavy thing to talk about. I suppose most pastors don't even relish the thought of having to preach on a subject like this. But, but... Lord, there is good news in all this darkness and all this pain and torment. And that is this. The good news is always found in Jesus. Found in His person. Found in His work. Found in His willing substitution. Found in His love. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for doing what you did. And for giving of yourself and experiencing the tortures, so that in this life, as the catechism says, we may be assured and we may be comforted that Jesus, especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and the torment of hell itself. What a beautiful thing. And we praise you for that. Lord, bless our discussion time. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.